Again, good morning. It is a great joy to be back with you at this time. An encouragement because you're family. And I love you, and I know you love me. And that's something that's very special. A few months ago, uh, as uh, Tom was considering this ministry, and we got together and talked a little bit and encouraged each other, uh, Tom asked me to speak on something that I have practiced, but I have never preached on, at least directly. And um, I am a little intimidated by the subject matter. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I think it's important in our day, and hopefully this will come out well. I'd like to begin by just asking you a, a question. What are the marks of a great church? Somebody want to, a couple, two or three of you tell me. What, what are the marks of a great church? Adherence to the scripture. What else? Church that teaches the word. Fellowship. All right. Now let me ask you a question. If we were to ask the average American Christian what the marks of a great church would be, what do you think they would say? Numbers. Entertainment. Numbers. That's the mark. Where in the scripture would we find such a a concept being taught that we should be impressed by numbers? Anyone have any thoughts? There is a passage, Acts 2, it talks about 3,000 believed. Acts 4 talks about 5,000 that repented. And I refer to that because that is what they refer to, the average American Christian, will go to those passages and emphasize the importance of numbers. But they fail to take into account the context in which that was found. You see, when the church began, it began as a, as a Jewish gathering who believed that Jesus was their Messiah. And in believing that Jesus was their Messiah, they were thinking back to the fact he has died now, And he's coming back. And he's going to come back because a remnant of Jews are going to call out for him to return. That's what it says in in, uh, Zechariah. It says that uh, in uh, uh, a number of other other places as well. That there'll be a remnant that, uh, that will call on his name. And so you put yourself in Peter's position. And the early Christians there that were Jewish, they're thinking... Look, look at all the people that are turning to Christ as Jesus, as their Messiah. We're the remnant. And we're going to be calling upon our Lord and He's going to return. He just went into heaven. He's going to come back. And He's going to establish the kingdom that was promised. That's why the numbers are there. But it's interesting that after chapter 4, there's no more numbers. Never in terms of a Gentile church and the latter portions of the book of Acts. We don't know how big the church at Ephesus was. I have no idea how big the church of Pergamos was. We have no idea. It doesn't seem to be important. Because that's not what God uses to evaluate the marks of a great church. The marks of a great church, I would like to submit to you, are found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And many of you have already brought it out, but let's go back and take a look at this. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we read, And they continued steadfastly, some versions would have, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine or teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Four marks of a great church. First, they devoted themselves, as you mentioned, to learning and understanding the nature and work of our triune God, recorded in part in the Old Testament, but then explained and taught in fuller detail by the apostles in what became the New Testament. Secondly, or thirdly, they devoted themselves to observing the Lord's Supper, which reminded them of his great sacrifice, making possible our eternal salvation from sin and death. Fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer, that they might be and become all the triune God intended them to be and become as his beloved children. Arch, you forgot something. Oh yeah, the second one. And they devoted themselves to fellowship, to greeting each other before and after church, to attending church dinners and Christmas and Easter celebrations. (laughs) Isn't that what fellowship is in our culture? Isn't that what it is? When it says they devoted themselves to fellowship, what exactly did that mean to the first century reader? What did it communicate? What did it encompass in, in respect to the rest of the New Testament? And lastly, what should it say to us now, right now, in our day, and in this love, loving church that I was privileged to be a part of and still feel I'm a part of, even as a missionary? The English word for fellowship translates the Greek word koinonia. You've undoubtedly heard of it which most lexicons would explain that means it's something like association, communion, fellowship, close relationships, sharing, so forth. However, recent linguistic studies have revealed that koinonia was not primarily used in the sense of association or communion with others, but sharing or participating with others in something which is identified by the grammar indicated in the context. Specifically, let me give you that in detail or in, uh, briefly. Specifically, when we ever we come across the word koinonia or related words in the New Testament, the focus is not on feelings of oneness or closeness or intimacy. That's not what the word's about. But upon sharing, and specifically, what is shared. That's what the focus is upon. It's upon sharing and what is shared. Therefore, fellowship is not primarily about the quality of our association or how close we feel, as important as that is to us. Rather, it is about what we share together. Fundamentally, it is about participating in association, about sharing that leads to relationships, not the other way around. It's not about a relationship that leads to sharing, but about sharing that leads to relationships. 
feeling close and tight as a church body is a residual benefit of fellowship. Becoming close is not the focus of fellowship. What did Luke mean when he summarized one of four major activities of this newly formed church with the words they continued steadfastly in fellowship? What did that mean? The word we translate continued steadfastly or devoted themselves generally has the idea of attend to something regularly. In other words, this was something that was ongoing. It's not like something you do walk away from. It's constantly working at this. And the issue is not of devoting themselves to feeling close to other believers, even when they're in their own church, but of devoting themselves to doing something with other Christians called fellowship. The big question is what? What was it they devoted themselves to as a body of believers? What was this visible, purposeful, specific activity that paralleled and was on par with their devotion to the teaching of the apostles? I mean, we're talking here about a quality that God is looking for in a church that is on par with the teaching of the Word of God. It's listed among four things that were critical in God's opinion. In the New Testament, the word koinonia, or fellowship, embraces two nuances. And listen carefully to this, because this is the heart of the, of the message here this morning. First, it has to do with what we share in common with other believers. Second nuance, or depending on the context, it has to do with sharing what we have with other believers. Did you catch that? There's a difference. The first nuance is what we share in common with other believers. The second nuance is sharing what we have with other believers. These are the two nuances in which koinonia occurs in the New Testament. First, I want to just touch on briefly what we share in common with other believers. You are probably more familiar with these truths because these are often proclaimed from the pulpit. That's what we preach every Sunday. But let me just review a few of them. We share, one of the things we share in common together is we share personal access to God as our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's basic. Everybody understands that that's been a Christian very long and been discipled. Secondly, we share the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the basis for our the forgiveness of our sins, and the certainty of our own bodily resurrection. Thirdly, we share the gift of the Holy Spirit who manifests the power of God through us in our daily lives. Fourthly, we share the mystery of the church, the body of Christ brought into existence by the Holy Spirit, working in those who by faith possess everlasting life. Fifthly, we share a special place in the body, whether we are rich and poor, black or white, male or female. We all have a place in the body of Christ. We're all important to God. Six, we share a common faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, along with the body of truth, once for all delivered to the saints, of which we are. Seventh, we share a past, a present, and a future salvation. And a lot of times we need to keep those tenses in mind. And lastly, just calling attention, there's other things I could share, but we share God's life and nature 
resulting in our being new creations in Christ Jesus. All of these things we share in common. All of us here today that are believers, and I imagine almost everybody, if, if not everybody, is a believer. So we have all these things in common. And we share them together. And out of that, we're drawn closer together in our relationships. There are simply a few obvious highlights linked to the word koinonia or fellowship in the New Testament. These are just a few. When it says they devoted themselves to fellowship, to what they shared in common, it indicates to me that they spent a great deal of time sharing the truth about who they were, strengthening their shared identity. All these things I just mentioned that we read off in that list, that all part of our identity. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. And it was out of that shared identity that they found the courage and the impetus to koinonia, if you will, or fellowship, or share in a different sense, a different nuance, and that takes us to the second nuance or aspect of koinonia. Let me share that with you. Sharing what we have with other believers, with each other as believers in Christ. In the first days of the church, they expressed this nuance or aspect of koinonia by sharing what they possessed in tangible things. Read with me, if you will, Acts chapter 2, verse 44. You're there in 242. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord, In the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church, to the gathering, the assembly, daily those who were being saved, coming to faith, repenting, and moving forward in their Christian walk. Now again, this response in Acts 2.44 to 47 was born partly out of a conviction that the Lord was going to return at any moment. They're Jews. They're looking for Jesus, who now they are confident is their Messiah, to return at any moment. And so, sell the home, sell your possessions, go for it. He's coming back at any moment. And he's going to establish the kingdom promised to Israel in the Old Testament. Eventually, it would become evident that this was not God's plan at this point in history. It takes about eight chapters to get to that point, nine chapters, in the book of Acts. And eventually they become confident at this point in history that the plan now was to spread the truth about Jesus and his salvation to the Gentiles. And the idea that at this moment he's going to come back and claim the the Jews that were believers as their Messiah and established the kingdom was just not on the front burner. What was on the front burner was reaching Gentiles, you and me and others, with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually it would become evident that this was not God's plan at this point in history and that God's plan was going to be a body not full of Jews calling upon the Messiah to return. That's future. But what will happen at this point is a body 
full of Gentiles and Jews who recognize Jesus as their Messiah and who have moved toward him who is their Savior and their Lord. The truth among the Jews and Gentiles throughout the world, it no longer became prudent or possible for this quickly expanding church because all of a sudden when the Gentiles got whiff of this in Acts 10, you know from Acts 10 to Acts 28, it just exploded. And all over the ancient world at that time, what they would consider the world, was just people were turning to Christ who were Gentiles as well as some Jews. And obviously fewer and fewer Jews, more and more Gentiles. As we read the New Testament, we can quickly grasp how the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of Koinonia, I should say, was working among believers wherever they were during those early years in which the church exploded all over the Roman Empire. What were they so readily willing to share? First, their goods and their possessions. Things of value, they shared that. Not quite in the sense that they did in Acts 2, 44 to 47, but they nevertheless shared those things. They shared their food, which in their culture, that was not an easy thing. To prepare a meal was not like, you know, putting it in the microwave. It took a lot of time and effort. Thirdly, they shared their homes, their houses. In order for believers to gather together physically, to eat meals together, to share the Lord's Supper, to hear the word of God taught, to worship, to sing, to pray. Notice Acts 12, verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many gathered together praying. Notice Acts 28, 30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. When they devoted themselves to Koinonia, they devoted themselves to sharing what they have, participating in what they together were giving. How's this translate into our culture today? We have possessions and goods. Now, we have money that usually represents those possessions and goods, and we pass an offering basket every Sunday, and we should give to support the church, which represents those goods and things that we could have bought, but instead we gave them to the church in the form of money. We have houses. We give money together to support this common house where we meet. But there's still something special about sharing a home for prayer, for meals, for Bible study, and as we'll see, for coming closer together. And they share their food. We can share our food. We can share it in our home. We can bring it to church for meals and so forth. This was undoubtedly a very, undoubtedly a very unique in their violent and filled world, it was, a, it was difficult to do these things. Not much more difficult than it is for us. However, a study of the word koinonia in the New Testament will quickly reveal that, that sharing what they have was a fundamental activity of the church. It was something they did that marked them apart from other parts of the culture of that world. People didn't share things in that world any more than they share things in this world. But when you looked at Christians, they were sharing what they had. 
Take a look at, if you will, to Romans 12, verse 13. It talks about uh, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. Two things that marked the church in Rome and that was to mark the church in Rome. So they met the needs of saints, of believers that were unable to care for themselves on the same level as most of the people in the church. But they're also given to hospitality. Now, when we think of hospitality, we think of inviting over, you know, in my case, I'd invite uh, uh, Glenn and uh, Jack and, and uh, you know, all my buddies come on over and have dinner with me in my home. That's hospitality in my mind. But that's not hospitality in the Bible. The word hospitality is made up of two Greek words. The first word is the word philo, which means uh, a love that's more of an attraction. And the second word is the word exenia, which is the word for stranger. In other words, hospitality is reaching out to those that you don't know and inviting them into your life, into your home, and so forth. It's the person who goes around and spots people in church and says, I don't know that person. I'm going to invite them over. Or goes to the neighborhood and sees somebody and says, we come over for dinner tonight. That's what hospitality was in that culture. Notice another verse here that's uh, critical. Philippians chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. This is an important passage. And uh, notice it uh, says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, 90% of the people that read that passage immediately think of what? The good work is the work of our salvation, right? And so it's an assurance that we're going to have, uh, that God's going to finish the work and we're all going to be walking with our Lord Jesus Christ when we die and we're going to be born again, saved and resurrected, no problem. But look at the context. The first rule of interpretation, context, context, context. Notice verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. These were people that were special to Paul. Always in every prayer of my making request for you with joy. I'm so excited about you. For your fellowship, there's the word koinonia, in the gospel from the first day until now. What's that fellowship in the gospel? It's their sharing with Paul, their wealth, in order that he could take the gospel, the good news to people beyond Philippi. And he says, God is going to be faithful to see that what you've given to me will produce the results that God intends to produce. It will be completed until the day Jesus returns. In other words, it's going to keep multiplying even to the day that we're living today who knows how the Philippi, Philippian church contributed in some way even to our own lives. That's what he's talking about. Philippians 4.15 drives this home even more. It says, Now the Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. This was a special church to Paul because they gave. They gave of themselves, but they also gave of their resources to support his work on the field. 
Now, in New Testament times, they shared what they had. They shared their possessions, their goods, their houses, their food. They gave specific gifts of money for the poor. They gave liberal gifts of money for persecuted believers. And they gave money to advance the presence or the preaching of the gospel and, in general, a willingness to share in the church to meet the needs of believers in their church and beyond. Now, looking back over my many years of ministry, I would like to suggest several things, other things they possessed, which they were exhorted to share with each other. In fact, these things were often codified with the expression, one another. For example, first and foremost, and this is the expression that's used most often of one another in the scripture, first and foremost, they were charged by our Lord himself to, above all else, love one another. Numerous times this phrase is used, love one another. This love they and we are to share with one another is agape love. It's a love that is not based upon attraction. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. But out of the will to say, thank you. Out of the will to think, to say, and to do what would be in the best interest of the person we love. It's a thoughtful love. It's saying, what does this person over here need? What can I give them to help them take their next step in their walk with Christ? That's the kind of love we're talking about here. What can I do? What can I say? How can I encourage? And so we find a number of other terms in this one another phrase that we've looked at before here. Encourage one another. Oh, how much. An encouraging word is like gold. Particularly if you're a pastor like Tom. Or you're a servant working in the back of the church and you're passing out bulletins. Or you're doing something else in the church and someone comes up and says, I really appreciate what you're doing. Oh, that makes such a difference in their life. That's something we give to them. Our encouragement. But it requires that we think about what we're going to say. It means we think about their life. What do they need to hear? That's what we're talking about. Comfort one another. And people need comfort. Three, put up with one another, or forbearing one another, it's called. But basically, it means put up with one another. I mean, you got some, some weird ducks in the church. You know that. And, you know, what do you do with these people? You put up with them, and you love them because Jesus died for them, and they believe in him. They're brothers or sisters in Christ. Fourth, admonish one another. There are times when... We're moving astray. And the Lord is saying, help this person get back on track by admonishing them. There are a number of others, and I don't have time today to go into them. These one another's falling under the umbrella of love result in attitude expressed in words and deeds. However, I would like for you to consider sharing with each other three other things that are perhaps the most difficult to share in your life and in my life, as believers and disciples in Jesus Christ. It's especially true in our Western culture. Your time and your thoughts. I'll share number three in a minute. Your time and your thoughts. Those are two things that we really resist sharing 
in our Western culture. Are you taking the time, am I taking the time, to think of ways we can encourage koinonia or fellowship in the sharing body of believers who make up Coast Bible Church? Of course, we first think of enlisting people in our ministries, like Awana. I remember when my daughter was leading Awana, and I know, uh, you know, that uh, it's been an ongoing uh, problem finding people to work in Awana. And so that's something we work hard at. Nursery, not one that's a favorite. Sunday school. Occasional dinners and programs at church. These are the things we think of at first, and we say we need to enlist people to do those things. Well, these ministries are wonderful and important. Perhaps we're putting the cart before the horse, as the saying goes. First, we need to get to know, really know, the people we are recruiting to teach Sunday school, lead our children, take on the, the, the study or the teaching of the Word of God. We need to know these people. They're going to lead my children, the youth. I want to know who in the world they are. Not just that they have a warm body and that they're still breathing. But you really do not know them. If all we do is go to church and say hi. And then say, you look like you've been around here a while. Will you run the nursery? We need to move away from our comfort zone, away from the casual hellos, away from the conversations on Sunday morning to something more revealing, but also something, some things that build deeper and more lasting relationships or friendships and that lead to commitments that are deeper to our church. Years ago, just after I became a pastor at Coast Bible Church, I, along with several other leaders in church, started thinking about taking fellowship seriously. And I kept thinking, well, how can we get things moving here? And I see a lot of faces here that were part of that. I know we're all with a few more wrinkles now and all that. But I think of Alan Kidd Eaton. They looked out for new attenders. People walked in the door for the first time. Guess where they would end up after church? at their home for dinner. They invited them in and they fed them a meal in their home. Jack and Sue Culp did the same thing when they took them out to eat. These people, Al, Kit, Jack, Sue, they cared about people. They wanted to know more about people. That was special. And then we began to track them and see, you know, as they integrate into the church, just what's going on. We had several that, uh, people in the church that organized a basketball ministry. I think Larry Thayer and I know Bill Hinckley and, and Dave Bacon have been a part of that for years. Uh, great ministry, reaching out into the community. My wife Carolyn and Kit Eaton organized the salt and pepper dinners. And you know what they did? And this was important. Instead of just taking a, 
uh, throwing all the names of the people in the church or all the numbers of families in the church in a basket and rolling it like you do the, the uh, lottery and pulling out a thing and say, well, you're going here, you're going there to a home. They sat down and they worked out. They had maybe six, seven, eight homes in the church and they would strategically place people together, new and old, young, I mean, young and old, new people, people that have been around for a while, children, older couples, together in homes where they could get to know each other cross-culturally. You go to a large church today, you have fellowship. If you're a divorcee, you go to a class with all divorced people. If you're a person that, uh, that uh, is into fitness, you can go to a class and that specializes in fit people. Well, you know, the unfit people need to mix with the fit people. How do you do that? Those with stable marriages need to meet and mix with some people with unstable marriages or no marriage. It's not a matter of singles here, marrieds here. It's a matter of coming together in Christ because we're all one. It's not a matter of throwing the old people like me out the door and saying, why don't you go die somewhere and get out of the way? Instead, include me in with the young ones. And that's what Carolyn and Kit did. Just two people working the whole church. And they knew the church well because they were obviously involved. Carolyn was involved as a pastor's wife talking to everybody under the sun. And Kit and Al had all the new people into their home. I did some things too. I created a theology study for believers that were committed to a more in-depth look at Scripture. And I learned a lot about people in that study. How, how committed they were to the Word of God. And I could say, here's somebody that would make a great Sunday school teacher. I also created a distinctives class for new people that were interested in our church. It wasn't like you sign up and you're a member and, you know, that's it. No, we covered doctrines of the faith that we believe in and are dear to our heart. And it gave me a chance to interact with them and know, well, here's a teacher that understands the grace of God. They'd be a good one for our high school group. Fred and Linda Koblenz organized, taught, and hosted a young adult Bible study in their home for several years. And then it was taken over, I think, by Dan and Kristen, wasn't it? And did a great job and appreciate that. But they were learning about the younger adults in our church. And we're helping them plug in as young adults. Now, let me mention a few other things we did. We were sort of a strange bunch. I remember that uh, we had a number of people in the church that liked to ski. And so myself and Debbie Riley and a few other people helped organize annual ski trips to various resorts around the, the country, the western part of the country. And we did that every year with 15, 20, 25 people. Got to know those people in the ski hill. If I fell down, it was, almost broke my leg, I could see if somebody came along that was part of the church group and helped me up, now there's somebody that I can trust. The rest is zipped on by, let the old goat die, you know. Some complained. They said, well, that's just for the rich people. I can't afford to go on a ski trip. I said, well, I've got a plan. We're going to hike the whole John Muir Trail. And it only costs you $100 a year or less. And so we hiked the John Muir Trail. And then we went on on the Pacific Crest Trail. Until I left here in 2000. Well, I think it ended about 2005. And I managed to last another year. 
Fred and Linda Koblenz organized annual dirt bike and quad runner trips out on the desert at Thanksgiving and Christmas or New Year's. People took part in that, and it was a great fun. But it gave you a chance to see people, to build relationships, to sit, not ride motorcycles all the time. That got boring. What doesn't get boring is talking with people, sitting underneath an awning and chatting away about our, t- our kids, our things, the things we have. Fred Linda also organized uh, boating and water skiing and all that for our young people, built great relationships between the young people who are now the church. And we have many of you here today. It all takes, to do all this, it takes people who will devote time and who will devote mental work. Think. Think of ways you can take your interest and weave those into the church and draw other people in that might have the same interest. Obviously, I was an active person, and I was attracted to things that involved activity. But there are many other ways that we can involve people in the church. And it's important for us to recognize that these are so valid as well. Trips to Haiti. I've been to Haiti. It's a tough place. But I applaud those in the church that are taking the time to go and do a work of, of service to those people who are so needy. I'd be glad to take people to Asia with me. And you'd see a world that's quite different than ours. There are great mission opportunities. There are service opportunities in our community where we can mix with other people. Spend time. Think of ways to bring people together in a sharing way that leads to deeper relationships. That's the goal. What can you do with your interest and the love that God has given you for ministries as well as for maybe activities and things you enjoy doing? How can you weave that in and draw other people into your life? That's the key. And out of that comes deeper relationships And deeper relationships are relationships that last in a church like this and that we need in a church like this. You know, this isn't a church where you walk in, try it out for a month or two and enjoy the music and go on down to the next show in town. This is a church where you've got to put in to take out. It's a church where you give and contribute. And hopefully, you'll gain much more back. Start with things you like to do things you like to work at, ministries you're interested in, and invite others to take part in them. It may be gardening, golf, or fishing, or something of that nature. And there are people here that like that. Get them involved. It may be going to Haiti. It may be working in the inner city. It may be serving meals at Thanksgiving uh, to poor and people that are destitute. There's a whole list of ministry opportunities that we can be plugged into. And invite others in the church to come and do it with you and get to know them. And then that solidifies the church into fellowship. All of this requires three things on our part. First, our time. Very precious. Second, our thoughts. We're lazy mentally. We'd much rather empty a wastebasket than to think through a problem. 
and yet it's thinking through the problems that we face that is critical to the health of a church. Thirdly, think about forgiveness. It's the one I haven't talked about yet, and I'm just going to close with it briefly. Whenever God's people work together, spend time planning and creating and acting and all that's going on and trying to make something work in the church, let me tell you something. People are going to get hurt. You may be the person that gets hurt. Or it may be somebody you're working with that is hurt because you said something they took the wrong way and they haven't told you. When Christians come together to serve our Lord Jesus Christ, be sure of one thing, someone's going to get hurt. It always happens. And when they get hurt, what do you do? You forgive. How important is that? Quote with me in closing here, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What's the most important part of the prayer? You say, well, it's all important. Well, it's true. But there's one part of the prayer that Jesus knew people needed to have underlined and highlighted in their Bible. And so he adds in the next two verses after the prayer, he says, for if you do not forgive one another, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. There's no place for grudges in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no place to say, I quit. I've had enough of this. She tells me this, or she tells me that, or he tells me this, or he tells me that, and they don't care what I do or what I am. I'm out of here. There's no place for that in the church. We need to forgive. And if we don't forgive, God's not going to forgive us. Now, that doesn't mean he's sending us to hell. It means he doesn't forgive us, and there's a big difference. When you are not forgiven... It means that you are harboring bitterness towards somebody else. And God says, I won't be close to you. I'm not going to be part of your life until you get that bitterness out of your heart. And you're my child. You know what it's like as a parent. You're raising two children and they're fighting. And you say, go apologize to your sister. Are you kidding? And mom won't talk to me for the rest of the day. And I don't like that. Dad comes home and he's not looking very happy. And I know he might do something a little bit more forceful than mom did. I'm thinking, maybe I better go ask forgiveness. And admit I was wrong. And make things right with my sister. That's the way it is with our God. A lack of forgiveness is not a lack of eternal salvation. It has nothing to do with it. But it has everything to do with our walk daily with our God. And if we don't have the slate clean with each other, then our God is not going to be happy with us, and we're going to feel it. We're going to sense his distance. That's not good. That's not good. Don't let bitterness and anger come between you and what God wants to do through your life in making this church the great church and continuing to make it a great church. God bless you. You're a great church, and thank you for your support and your love. In my work overseas, and someday I'll 
share a little bit more with you about that work. Thank you, Tom.